Okay, funny story. In our last episode, we say repeatedly that we have allergies and neither of us is feeling good. <laughs> Hilarious, because we actually both had COVID. Yeah, and if you go even further back to episode six, there's literally a part where I say- You said you were exhausted. I'm so exhausted. I just don't feel physically well. Yeah. Turns out. Joke's on us. After that LOL. happened, when we were reviewing the episodes after the fact, <laughs> we were like, we are so stupid. We are so dumb. <laughs> and unfortunately, we exposed one of our friends because we were both just like, oh, yeah, we yeah. have allergies. Well, it was like every single thing <sighs> that possibly could have shown us it's not COVID happened. I'd had yeah. a panic attack. So the fatigue for me, because my symptoms started earlier. But they weren't as strong because I've had it before. Yeah, where it was so my I was fatigued, and I thought it was the panic attack stuff. Yeah, and then Dustin Dander was high, which is the only thing that really affects my allergies. Yeah, the allergies were bad. One of our friends that I got together with was like, "Oh yeah, my allergies are really bad today." And then I woke up Saturday morning with the worst chills, yeah, fever, mm-hmm. body aches I've ever had. And even then, I was like. Yeah, I have this cold. Yeah. And I went to the grocery store and that was when I, I was I texted the group chat and was like, what what sickness makes it hard to hold the gas pedals down when you drive? <laughs> and then I shortly after tested positive for COVID and I was like, well, yeah. it turns out. I probably would have tested because the day where I got the the spicy sinuses. I have those right now. It's they're the worst. But I've that's like the that. one that it, I've only had it with COVID. It's it really is because you. It's like you snorted a net like a neti pot of cool water. Yeah, yeah. And the only reason I would have eventually tested if you hadn't been getting sick is because I finally did get spicy sinuses over the weekend. The timing of it was so funny because one of our friends I had texted her we were supposed to have a friendsgiving the next day, and I had texted her just to say like Hey, I'm really sick. I think it's like the flu, but I'll take a COVID test tomorrow morning." And she's yeah. like, oh, I actually have a COVID test. I'll just bring it to your house. And I was like, awesome. And she brought me one on the way too. I go out, I take my dog outside and I run into one of our other friends. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Ross. <laughs> and my house is on his bike route. Like he always rides his bike by my house. And I was like, honestly, I'm really sick. And he was saying how he's been listening to the podcast and loves it. He was just, he's just the sweetest human. I love Ross so much. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I've been listening to the podcast. It's awesome. And I was like, thank you so much. I have to go lie down. And I literally <laughs> went in and Maggie FaceTimed me the second I walked inside. Because I'd already like, taken my test. She's like, I also got a COVID test and... It's positive. <laughs> it literally... It's positive. It took like, I, like, I think, Ugh. four minutes for it to be like, zing, Mine and like the brightest the, line. The I walked away, test. so it maybe was there earlier. Like but. the... What's it called? The science. Come on. The control. Whatever the, stem. It yeah. hadn't even gotten to that. And the it was positive already. line was already there. Yeah. So, Oof. so that was our week. Yeah. Okay. It's much better your second time. I still was really, really tired. Because on episode six, after that, some of our friends were going out to get pizza, and I just, like, sobbed. And I had a headache. Yeah. And I was sobbing for emotional reasons, but I also was just like, I am so... I didn't even want to go down to the street corner in my sweats to get pizza. Just us. I was also so... And I think it was more COVID than just emotional stuff that I quit my job because I had COVID oh yeah (laughs) maybe well hi I'm Maggie and I'm Sarah and this is Mad Mad Woman in in the Attic Attic. ho 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 
Let's, Let's go, go girls. girls. Okay, I had a couple fun questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I had a funny way of getting into the holiday spirit this morning. Uh-huh. I was wondering, well, this episode is coming out the day before Thanksgiving. Yes, so I will Are be you on the a holiday beach. spirit yet? Uh, yeah, I drank a whole glass of eggnog last night. Wow. Uh, and I've been listening to my Christmas lo-fi every yeah. day. So those are my two things. The eggnog in particular is my holiday spirit cheering me up in the evening. I love that for you. Yeah, as we saw in a previous episode. <laughs> I feel like maybe maybe it's time for me to do a hot chocolate. Yeah. I just can't stop throwing ass to my cozy Christmas jazz playlist. <laughs> I... I that's all that's all good 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 i think i'm transitioning into the christmas jazz from the lo-fi i can't find the christmas jazz i was listening to last year but i have been listening to a different one and i don't know why like anytime i hear music that isn't twerkable like my instinct is to twerk to twerk so that's what i did yeah this morning is it? Is that I why did. you're so tired? Probably. It <laughs> lifted yourself my out. spirits That's a good. lot. High spirits, low energy. Oh, I can't do a COVID. Holy shit. Yeah. I can't do it. This was my first time with it. And the f- I had to go on Pax Lovid. Yeah. Which very grateful for because I have asthma. That messed you up. That was I think you would have felt a lot crazy. better this week. I actually think my cough probably would have turned into a... Yeah. I always get upper respiratory infections because mm-hmm. of my asthma. So I do think I was less sick, but the side effects of Paxlovid are wild. Uh, and now I'm just like, I think, regular COVID tired. Right. So I'm really, I'm really trying to force myself to stay home and do nothing. But mm-hmm. both of our group chats... We're making plans tonight, and I was just so sad. But it'll be okay. All right. So (laughs) anyways, we had a submission. Yes, we have our first. We have our first listener submission. I feel like this is a good time to pop my drink. Oh, yeah. I popped mine before we started. What was I thinking? I feel like I'm going to hate this. What is it? It's one of those probiotic sodas, which are my new favorite thing lately, but it's strawberry lemonade. Strawberry lemon. Not for you? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm so sorry to this company, but Poppy, I like the Dr. Pepper one better. <laughs> All right. So, yes, we got our first um, listener submission for a story. And so I'm going to read it to Sarah because she has not heard it yet because I have access to the email. You probably do, too. but I do, too, but I don't check don't it. Don't check it. I... If I'm supposed to, let yeah. me know. No, um, I can do this. And this was in response to episode six, if you yes. haven't listened to it, where we talked about Anne Hamilton Byrne and mm-hmm. cults. Yeah. Okay. Ready? Okay, here we go. I'm ready. Let me put my glasses back on. This is from Julie. Sometime between 2000 and 2003, I was invited by an acquaintance, already a yellow flag at yeah. least, in the music industry Turn into a red flag (laughs) to an info session by Landmark Education. Do you know anything about them? No. I didn't either, but I looked into them a little bit after this. This girl and I both worked in music publishing, and I was hoping to become better friends with her. She was sweet, my age, etc., so I went. Landmark Education is about helping individuals go after their goals, become better people, find deeper meaning in life, join a great community, etc. Okay. So I signed up for the four-day seminar, $450. Ooh. 
Right. Which, you know, coming from marketing, people are paying like so much money for marketing seminars and stuff. So, you know, still, still yellow the flags. seminar though, really. Right. Yeah. Makes me nervous. It was suggested to get a hotel across from the seminar since each day would be a 16 to 18 hour day. No. Yeah. I'm immediately out. no. <laughs> hey, it takes time to brainwash you. <laughs> Here's what I remember. The man leading the weekend wore a turban, had a cute accent, funny stories mixed in with deep truths about life. His boss chimed in on occasion and had a deep personal hate toward Tom Cruise. Somehow, he would always go back to Tom Cruise and what a no-good actor he was. That should have been one of many clues, and I love Tom, despite his beliefs, that she wrote that. We had to account for the person on either side of us. Therefore, after quick breaks, if the person next to you had not returned, you had to report it immediately. (laughs) Yeah, that happened to one guy, and the people in charge went crazy asking who knew him, did they know where he lived, his phone number, and so on. We had very little sleep, and on the third day, they did a guided meditation. One lady started crying, then many other people started crying. It was like a collective breakdown of half the people in the room, about 300 people. The leader, of course, was able to point out that this was a great breakthrough, and we could rebuild our lives now. We had to write down names of people we had bad encounters with, then write them a letter, then invite people to come to our graduation on the final day, and who also needed this wisdom, this transformation. There was tons of pressure to get people in and get them to sign up. The girl that invited me was a volunteer for the four days. She barely spoke to me and wouldn't make eye contact. I flat out asked her if this was a cult. She gave a nervous laugh and I said, funny. (laughs) I didn't invite anyone to the grand finale, which ended up being a big sales pitch to those in the audience. For months thereafter, I got hounded with phone calls from landmark people to return so I could fulfill my goals in life. That girl that invited me, well, we never became real friends. Today, I looked her up on Facebook, and all our friends list their profession as landmark education. Cult. And that's the rough version of my close call with joining a cult. Finally, and sadly, I did do an MLM. You're right. That's a cult, too. I wish someone would have slapped me, but now I'm an owner of some pretty good essential oils. Live and learn. (laughs) Wow. I love Julie. (laughs) Me, too. Yeah. Wow. That was a close call. I love that she was not susceptible at all. Yeah. Well, and I actually talked to her about it a little bit because I texted her and was like, oh, my God, you sent in a story. And she was like, yeah, I've had a lot of close calls. And she's like a very kind of spiritual person. And I'm like, I feel like people can see that and see that as like you're an easy target. But like, you know better. You know, but it's hard when you're in the room and there's pressure. Yes. Well. Well, glad you made it, Julie. Yeah. My question of the week, which is a new thing. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's harder to be single when you're sick? Like when you're really sick? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Simple, straightforward answer. Yeah. I have been single now for so long. I have lived many years alone at this point. Yeah. And I kind of gradually eased into it. I lived with one person in grad school, had some time to myself in grad school, lived with my parents for a little short while before kind of like transitioning fully into living entirely alone. In 2018, it was like the frog in the boiling water. And I didn't register. (laughs) I have never heard anyone say it apart from you. I really? know it's a saying, but you're the only person I've ever heard oh. say it. And well, whenever you say it, it it's makes a great me analogy. I love it for stuff like this because I feel like you had a very sudden kind of transition into yeah. this, and I didn't even really register that I there was like 
stuff I was compensating for. Yeah. Until like, it was like a f- couple years in and I was home, I think, and I was not well. I, I had pinched something in my neck. So I wasn't yeah. sick, but I was like immobile. I think it was actually beginning of COVID. Oh my God, yeah. it was beginning of COVID. I was quarantining with them for a little bit and I had hurt myself rollerblading. <laughs> Oh, I remember that. Pinched a nerve, yeah. And I started feeling better, and I was crying because I was like, it was so nice to be taken care, care of. Yeah. And I felt that way when I had surgery recently, too, because it was I stayed with my parents then, and I was, like, really kind of upset when it was ending. I was like, I feel so much better, which is awesome. But, yeah. like, I think especially, like, as time goes on, and you've been doing it for not to – give you any negative feelings about you know the future but like it is something you learn to get used to and so when you're in a situation where you don't have to do that for yourself anymore it's like wow like the relief I felt yeah of not having to take care of myself after having to do that pretty much all the time now yeah was intense yeah that was I think I did not have the most nurturing of partners yeah (laughs) you know I didn't have like he was not the type of person who would, like, I don't know, go out of his way. Right. But, because this was the most sick I have, one of the most sick yeah, sick I've been. That sentence didn't make sense, but I think you know what yeah. I'm trying to say. <laughs> COVID brain. Um, yeah, I'm going to blame literally anything. Anything I do that's stupid or silly for the next year of my life, I'm going to blame on COVID brain. Yeah. But he wasn't, like, a super nurturing person. But anytime I was sick, there was another person there to, like, take the dog out mm-hmm. or, or like, cook or, like, yeah. keep up with the chores. That was the stuff that was the mm-hmm. hardest where it was, like, especially when my fever was high over the weekend, just getting out from under my covers to, ha- to like, feed myself yeah. <laughs> was just, like, oh, I wish there was someone else here. And, mm-hmm. like, I will say our friends were very supportive. Mm-hmm including you, my friends, were very supportive and helpful and, like, helped with the stuff that I just couldn't do. But the first day that I was sick, I woke up and made oatmeal and it overflowed Mm -hmm. in the microwave and I just burst into tears. Yeah. So I was like, I don't have anyone to do this for me. Um, But, you know, just a moment of weakness. Yeah. Now I feel fine about it. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I I actually thought that was what happened when we were on FaceTime together and you freaked out. I thought your oatmeal had overflown, but turns out there was a wasp. Oh, yeah. I had a huge wasp nest. Yeah. Love my pest control, man. I think that's the second time on this podcast. And your pest control girl. That I, yeah. And Maggie came over and killed the wasp once again. (laughs) Cause I just, I can't, I can't fuck around with those wasps. Yeah. I can't do it. It's like, I've gotten over cockroaches. I've gotten over spiders. I can do pretty much anything with those wasps, man. They are no. the ones that scare me more than anything. I can't do them. And wow, do they have long legs? That was weird. When it was dying, it, it was on its back, stretching out its legs. And I was like, those are like really long yeah. legs. Usually they have their knees all tucked up. Mm-hmm. Anyways. So it. Answer, yes. Yes. It is harder to be single when you're sick. Yes. And when I have to break down a cardboard box. So far, those have been the two times this right. year where I'm like, man, I wish I had a boyfriend. Who helped you break down the cardboard box, though? You did. I am boyfriend. And uh, there was a man. Oh, well, yeah. Who also helped me with some cardboard. We do not speak his name. It was a high price to pay. <laughs> My dignity. <laughs> Anyways, should we get into this story? Let me put my glasses on. Yeah, baby. I noticed. Hold on. 
stop chewing first. Oh, sure. <laughs> you don't want to listen to me chew? No, I I was re- talking to the people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> got it, got it. Why are you sipping it when you <laughs> hate it? <laughs> I probably would like... Well, does it taste like probiotic-y? No, it tastes like a Route 44 limeade. Oh. Oh, Route 44 is a size. It doesn't taste like a large. Yeah. <laughs> but. Same thing. Yeah. Cherry limeade. Ho, 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 ho. Story time. What I was going to say is I noticed when I was writing this that I feel like you keep picking women who are like inspiring. And I keep picking stories <laughs> that are just like so The next up. one I'm going to do I, I don't think is. I have to pick an inspiring one next Yeah. Time. Okay. Is Eileen Warnos a heartless, man-hating killer? Or was she repeatedly failed by the people and systems that should have protected her? Or possibly a mysterious third option. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go with C. (laughs) Well, only time will tell. (laughs) Let's get into Eileen Warnos. Eileen Carol Warnos was born February 29th, 1956 in Rochester, Michigan. She's a Pisces. Cool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love all my Pisces out there. (laughs) My sister is a Pisces. But if there's, you know, an emotionally driven crime, (laughs) I feel like there are a lot of actually Pisces. Criminals? Criminals. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of serial killer Geminis. That's my sign. In terms of the study's findings, it was revealed that four zodiac signs, such as Cancer, Pisces, Sagittarius, and Scorpio, comprise nearly 40% of serial killers. On the other hand, Gemini and Taurus, when combined, only make up 11%. (sighs) Bitches. (laughs) Okay. Back to Eileen with an A for our listeners, not with an E. Come on, Eileen. But pronounce Eileen, I'm... I'm sure. I did read that she went by Lee, though. Interesting. Trigger warning. Sexual assault. Suicide. Violence. Her mother, Diane, was only 14 years old. Ooh, when she married her father, Leo. Who was 18 at the time. I have in my notes, yuck, in parentheses. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And she was only 15 when she gave birth to Eileen's older brother, Keith. And 16 when she had Eileen. And she filed for divorce from Eileen's father two months before Eileen was born. Oof. Rough beginnings. Yeah. And in January 1960, when Eileen was almost four, Diane, her mother, abandoned the kids. Which honestly is not surprising considering her age and just like how she came about having them with an older guy. Mm Mm-hmm. She left them in the care of her parents, Lori and Britta Warnos, who legally adopted Keith and Eileen later that year. But um, Eileen's grandparents were both alcoholics, so probably not the best home situation. Maybe a little better than her biological parents. Right. And I did read that she and her brother thought that her grandparents were her parents up until their like early teen years and when they found out about their real parents then it was like a very jarring right 
experience. Yeah. And Eileen never met her biological father, Leo, which was probably for the best. Mm -hmm. In 1967, he was sentenced to life in prison for kidnapping and raping a seven-year-old girl. (sighs) Can you imagine that being your father? And this was also not that surprising to me considering how old Diane was when he married her. Um, And he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and he hung himself while he was in prison in 1969. Jesus. So Eileen would have been like 13 or 14 around the time he died. So already super traumatic Mm -hmm. upbringing. Eileen has a long history of sexual abuse while living with her grandparents. She claims that her grandfather repeatedly sexually assaulted and beat her. It also sounded like her brother, who was only one year older than her, may have sexually abused her. It said that they had sexual contact with each other, but it was unclear if it was, like, encouraged by her grandfather, like if it was his abuse or the brother's abuse. Mm -hmm. And by age 11, she starts engaging in sexual activities at school in exchange for cigarettes, drugs, and food. And by age 14, she becomes pregnant after being raped by a family friend and gives birth at a home for unwed mothers and the baby is put up for adoption. So she's only 14 and has had the lifetime trauma that you would hope on no one. Literally just today, I was doing homework for my human development course, talking about complex PTSD. And it's like all the patterns are there. And like the escape to substances, the risky behaviors to get those substances or to experience some sort of either control or relief, like, wow. Well, and it was really hard to think about being abandoned by both parents, Mm -hmm. knowing that your biological father is a sexual predator, Mm -hmm. being abused then by your grandfather and your grandmother not protecting you. Right. Every adult in her life has failed her. Everyone who's older than her in her life so far is not protecting her, is harming her. That does literal physical things to your brain. I read something that like at the age that her mom abandoned her and then at the age that she found out that her grandparents were her grandparents Mm -hmm. were like really pivotal points in forming your like mother-daughter bond Mm -hmm. and that that alone can like really... yeah mess up how you Mm -hmm. see things she was like four was like a very important developmental age yeah and then i want to say she was like around 10 when she found out about her grandparents yeah so then a few months after she gives birth and gives up the baby for adoption she has like clear signs of struggling she drops out of school and then her grandmother dies of liver failure and her grandfather kicks her out of the house so she becomes homeless at 14 or 15 She's living in the woods near her old house and starts doing sex work in order to survive at a very young age. So severe trauma in her childhood. Yeah, that's where we see her starting to get into the legal system. So from there, Eileen's late teens and 20s are very chaotic, very reckless, very unstable. So at age 18, this is in 1974, she's arrested for driving under the influence, disorderly conduct, and firing a 22 caliber pistol from a moving vehicle. That same year, she hitchhikes to Florida and marries a 69-year-old yacht club president named Louis Gratz Fell. She assaults Louis with his own cane, and he files a restraining order, and this is within weeks of their marriage. She just, like, beats him with his own cane. <laughs> 
which is so silly. <laughs> like that, that was like <laughs> I she's just that was a girl. So silly. <laughs> she's just like. Wah. <laughs> so he files a restraining order. Obviously, their marriage is annulled, mm-hmm. and she returns to Michigan and is again arrested for assault and disturbing the peace after throwing a cue ball ball at a bartender's head. Look, <laughs> I know. I reiterate my decision that it is C, a mysterious third option. <laughs> I know. Because part of me is a little bit like, <laughs> yeah, you throw that cue ball. Yeah, you probably deserved it. Yeah. <laughs> So that was just ages 18 to 20 that all of that happened. So she's busy. Yeah. (laughs) She's clearly unstable. She's making Mm -hmm. reckless choices and she's racking up legal charges. Right. She's not even into her 20s. Mm -hmm. And in 1978, at the age of 22, sadly, she attempts suicide by shooting Mm -hmm. herself in the stomach, which I thought that was very interesting because... It's not very common for women to commit suicide violently, and this was actually her sixth suicide attempt. Her first was at age 14. So that, I thought, was interesting. And there's another note at the very end of this that kind of ties in, but it's noteworthy that she attempted in a way that was, like, more often associated with men. Mm. And her stomach. stomach. There's, like, data about uh, men having greater suicide rates but they have greater success rates and i think it's either pretty close yeah women or women have more attempts women have higher attempts but they use methods that are less likely to succeed and it it almost feels like shooting yourself in the stomach is both because it's It's on your head but it is like that is like from what I look of all the research I've done it with writing my book, painful a stomach die. injury is one of the like slowest, yeah. most painful ways to die. Yeah. Terrible, painful, also more likely that she would receive help in time. Yeah. But very violent. And also yeah. I thought it was interesting that she shot herself in the stomach after having to give up a baby. Yeah. Feels symbolic. Yeah, it does. So that was her sixth attempt. So she's clearly like having a lot of mental illness that's obviously not being treated Mm -hmm. so in her getting into her mid-20s this is where we start to see like her criminal activity escalating Mm -hmm. in 1981 she's arrested in edgewater florida for armed robbery robbery in 1984 she's arrested for attempting to pass forged checks at a bank in key west in 1985 she's named as a suspect in the theft of a revolver and ammunition in pasco county In 1986, she's arrested in Miami and charged with car theft, resisting arrest, and obstruction of justice. The Miami police find a revolver and ammunition in the stolen car. She's been busy. Busy, 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 busy. And then later that year, Eileen is detained in Volusia County for questioning after a male companion accused her of pulling a gun in his car and demanding $200. So she's doing sex work this whole time Mm -hmm. as her job to pay the bills, but obviously getting into quite a bit of trouble outside of that. And I think she also had some charges around sex work, but those were like her charges that she Mm -hmm. was arrested for. So now we find her. She's 30 years old and she meets 24-year-old Tyria Moore, a motel maid. They meet at the Daytona Beach gay bar called Zodiac. And like all true lesbians, mm. they immediately move in together. Yes, of course. Classic. <laughs> I yeah. saw that coming the yeah. second you said her name. I was like, oh. They move in together. Yeah. And Eileen supports them with the money she's making from sex work. And in 1987, they're both brought in for questioning by the Daytona Beach police because they're accused together of assault and battery with a beer bottle. 
So they're both getting up to shenanigans, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then interestingly, in 1988, and this is the year before the killings start, mm-hmm. she accuses a Daytona Beach bus driver of assaulting her. She claims that he pushed her off the bus following a confrontation, and Tyria is listed as the witness to the incident. Okay. I couldn't find whether it went through or not, mm-hmm. whether he was... We're going to struggle with words today. Acquitted? Acquitted is let off, isn't it? Whether he was convicted, that's uh. the word. But I thought the, the time timing was interesting. Yeah. Okay, so between 1989 and 1990, Eileen murders seven men within a period of 12 months. And I thought this time frame was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Considering, like, she's been very violent and reckless up until this point, but then kills seven people in a one-year window. It's very, well, maybe you talk about something that triggered. Well, I thought it was interesting, like, her dad's diagnosis of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Because she wasn't diagnosed, but it is interesting that, like, all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. you know, she becomes more violent. Yeah. Um, it just kind of made me wonder what was going on with her psychologically. Yeah. Because um, it didn't really seem like anything else changed, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So all seven of the men were motorists between the age of 40 and 65. And Eileen claims that all of the men raped her or tried to rape her and that their murders were self-defense. Mm-hmm. So let's go through our victims. The first victim was Richard Mallory. He was 51 at the time. He owned an electronic store in Clearwater, Florida. And Eileen claimed that Mallory beat and raped her after driving her to an abandoned area for sexual services on November 30th, 1989. Later, it became known that Mallory had previously been convicted for attempted rape in Maryland. Two days after the murder of Lucia County, Deputy Sheriff found Mallory's abandoned vehicle, and on December 13th, his body was found several miles away in a wooded area. He had been shot several times and had two bullets in his left lung, which were found to be the cause of death. Yeah. So that's the first. The second victim was David Spears, age 47. He's a construction worker in Winter Garden. He was declared missing on May 19th, 1990, and on June 1st, 1990, his naked body was found along Highway 19, and he had been shot six times by a 22 caliber pistol, her fave. Wow. The third victim was Charles Karskadden, age 40. He was a part-time rodeo worker, murdered May 31st, 1990. On June 6th, 1990, his body was found in Pasco County. He had been shot nine times with a 22 caliber weapon. His body had been found wrapped in an electric blanket and was badly decomposing when found. Mm. Um, Witnesses saw Eileen in possession of his car, and she had also pawned a gun identified as belonging to him. The fourth victim was Peter Sims, age 65, retired merchant seaman. In June 1990, Sims left Jupiter, Florida for Arkansas, and on July 4th, 1990, his car was found in Orange Springs, Florida. Tyria and Eileen were seen abandoning his car, and Eileen's palm print was found in the interior door handle, but his body was never found. Hmm. And he becomes, From Arkansas to Florida? From Florida to Arkansas. Wow, so they're like traveling, traveling. No, he was traveling from Florida oh, to Arkansas, I see, I see, I see. but his car Got was it. found in Florida. All the mm-hmm. murders took place in Florida. Okay. 
The fifth victim was Troy Burris, age 50. He was a sausage salesman from Ocala, Florida. On July 31st, 1990, he was reported missing. Body was found in on August 4th in a wooded area along State Road 19, same as uh, one of the previous ones, mm-hmm. and he had been shot twice. The sixth victim was Charles Humphreys, aged 56, retired U.S. Air Force major, former state child abuse investigator, and former chief of police. Whoa. Murdered September 11th, 1990. The next day, his body was found in Marion County. Uh, He was fully clothed and had been shot seven times in the head and torso, and his car was found in Sewanee County. So she was clearly moving people's vehicles afterwards. Mm -hmm. Their bodies are always found separate. Okay, the seventh and final victim was Walter Antonio, age 62. He was a trucker, security guard, and reserve police officer. And on November 19th, 1990, Antonio's nearly naked body was found near a remote logging road in Dixie County. He had been shot four times. Five days later, his car was found in Brevard County. Mm. So with all of them, they've been shot multiple times by a similar weapon. Their cars have been ditched. And then she's loosely found related to some of their items. Right. So there's several pieces of evidence that lead to Eileen being arrested. Most importantly, Eileen crashed the car of victim Peter Sims. So he was the fourth victim. He's the only one whose body was never found. But because she crashed his car, he was one of the most important for her being caught. Because she and Tyria are seen fleeing the accident to ditch the car because it's evidence. And there was a witness, Rhonda Bailey, who saw them and provided their descriptions for like a sketch for a media mm-hmm. campaign to locate them. And that was like very important in finding them. And then Eileen was basically, when she killed them, she would steal their valuables and take them to pawn shops. So that was a really important reason why she was caught. Uh, she was tied to several of the victim's belongings in pawn shops. And then her fingerprint was on a receipt in a pawn shop. And it was also on... Peter Sims' car, mm-hmm. and because she had a long criminal history, her fingerprints were in the database, right. so it was pretty easy. It doesn't to... sound like she was doing much to really... No. It was pretty easy it to was... figure out who yeah. did it. I mean, it still took them a while to, I think, yeah. tie them all together to the same person mm-hmm. and realize that it was a woman mm-hmm. and connect her to it, mm-hmm. because the first murder was end of 1989 November December and she's caught January of 1991 so it's about a year Mm -hmm. so on January 9th 1991 Eileen is arrested at she's found at the last resort biker bar in Florida and then Tyria was located poetic yeah the last (laughs) resort I know Tyria was located the next day in Pittston, Pennsylvania, so it kind of seems like she tried to run mm-hmm. um, and didn't make it. And this part, I don't know why this got me the most. Tyria agrees to elicit a confession from Eileen in exchange for immunity. And after, she basically like records a bunch of phone calls with Eileen trying to get a confession out of her. And Eileen confesses on the phone on a recorded call. Mm. But she, on that call, claims that she murdered all of the men in self-defense because they were trying to rape her. But it hurt me that her girlfriend, who she loved so much... I mean, granted, if my significant other murdered seven people, and she obviously knew about it, or at least knew parts of it, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't defend them in a court of law. But 
there was something about that that just felt like such a betrayal. Yeah. And for me, it was because of what follows with the legal system where it just felt like she might have had a better chance. Don't tell Sarah about the murders. Yeah. Takes notes. (laughs) (laughs) So on January 14th, 1992, so this is another year later, Eileen goes to trial for the first murder, Richard Mallory. Mm -hmm. And Tyria's testimony is key in the case. So I was reading about like in most states, you can't bring up other charges. Mm -hmm. So if you're charged with multiple things, you can't consider those in a trial. But for some reason in Florida at this time, it was allowed. Hmm. And so they not only brought up her previous criminal charges to like paint a history of her being a criminal, they also brought in the six uh, six other murder charges to the Richard Mallory charge, which isn't normally allowed because she's not convicted of those charges yet. Yeah. So she should be considered innocent until proven guilty for those other six cases. Yeah. But they were considered right. in her trial. Um, and so she's convicted of the murder of Richard Mallory. And four days later, she's sentenced to death. And at her sentencing... Psychiatrists from the defense testify that Eileen is unstable. They diagnose her with borderline personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. (laughs) And what I thought was the most confusing, like, legally, was that they allowed all of her other charges to be considered in the trial, but Eileen's defense made efforts to introduce evidence that Mallory, the victim had previously been convicted of attempted rape in Maryland and had served a sentence in a maximum security correctional facility providing remediation to sexual offenders. And the records from the facility claimed that Mallory possessed strong sociopathic trends, but the judge refused to allow those records to be admitted in court as evidence and denied Eileen's request for a retrial. So that was confusing to me because a huge part of Eileen's case was that it was in self-defense and that he raped her. Yeah. And he was a convicted rapist. So like his charges really supported her claims. So her account of what happened the the day of the murder with Richard Mallory was basically that he had hired her for sex work Mm -hmm. and very normal, drove his car out to like a secluded area in the woods. I guess that was like normally how she worked. They spent hours together talking and smoking weed and like chilling. And then according to her, she disrobes to give him what he's supposed to pay for. And at that point he says he doesn't have the money. And so she puts her clothes back on and says, this isn't happening. And that's when he says, I don't care and assaults her. And that he was, like, very violent and threatening to kill her. And then that's when she reached for her purse, had a gun in it, and shot him. Mm -hmm. And that she kind of, like, threw a rug over his body and drove his car off. And it sounded very unplanned. Like, her account of it definitely sounded like self-defense. But Mm -hmm. one thing that she said when asked about her trials was that it was the number that kept being focused on, that it was seven people in one year right and that that seemed more important than it being self-defense yeah which i can kind of see both perspectives on Mm -hmm. that so on march 31st 1992 eileen pleads no contest to three of the other murders charles humphreys troy buris and david spears 
and she claimed that she wanted to get right with God. In her statement to the court, she was quoted saying, I wanted to confess to you that Richard Mallory did violently rape me as I've told you, but these others did not. And then a very important piece of the statement says, they only began to start to. And it was really interesting to me that a lot of the what's written about her said that she walked back her claims of self-defense. That wasn't quite, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's not exactly what she said. Yeah. So on May 15th, 1992, Eileen is sentenced to death three more times. So she is up to four death sentences. Wow. In June, she pleads guilty to the murder of Charles Carscadden and receives her fifth death sentence in November. In February of 1993, she pleads guilty to the murder of Walter Antonio, who was the final victim, and receives another death sentence. And no charges were brought against her for the murder of Peter Sims, who was the one who was really important in her being caught because his body was never found. So she had uh, six death sentences, which even for a serial killer is I, odd. Yes. I was literally just thinking how it's very odd. incongruent that is with like the frequency of death penalties for like white male serial killers. Well, I read somewhere because Ted Bundy was executed, mm -hmm. but I read somewhere that even he was like offered life in prison as like an option for a sentence where this mm -hmm. was a capital case, yeah. which means that they're just considering the death penalty, mm -hmm. not life in prison. So like she pled no contest and still received the death penalty, which like usually if you plead guilty to something, you can get a lesser sentence. Yeah. Which would be like life in prison for something like murder. Yeah. yeah. And she got six death sentences, which is, it is, is a lot. Like it's abnormally a lot. So it's said that there were some inconsistencies with Eileen's stories about the killings throughout her various trials. She initially claimed that all seven men raped or attempted to rape her while she was working as a sex worker. But later she cited robbery and a desire to leave no witnesses as the reason for murder. But again, like based on the statement she made in court, it didn't really sound like she was walking it back on self-defense. Mm -hmm. And then later, in an interview with filmmaker Nick Broomfield, who made a documentary about her, she told him when she thought the cameras were off that it was in fact self-defense, but she could not stand being on death row and wanted to die. So she was on death row for about 10 years, but she had to go through all of those trials, which delays and delays and yeah. delays. So if you already have a death sentence and then you have to go through five more trials of death sentences. Mm -hmm. There was a video of her when she was being taken from the prison to court and she was clearly like really frustrated that they were bringing up the other cases and she just wanted to be executed. But there was also later some criticism of her initial legal team. So after she's convicted, she had Joe Hobson as her lawyer when they like tried, I think there was a couple times that they um, appealed for a retrial mm -hmm. and he was her lawyer for that. But her representation the first time around when she was convicted was a guy who was literally called Dr. Legal. Like, he showed like one of those like scammy yeah. infomercials, you know. And yeah. Joe Hobson, her lawyer later, like felt really strongly that the justice system had just completely failed her. Yeah. And like had just decided she was guilty and wanted mm -hmm. to put her to death. And there was a lot of speculation that her being a female serial killer and a sex worker made yeah. her like much more scrutinized mm -hmm. than someone like Ted Bundy who was right. 
middle class, which he was also executed to be clear, but mm -hmm. like that the perception of her was much more negative. Yeah. So she's executed October 9th, 2002. So almost 10 years later. And like we said, it, it is kind of crazy that she was given six death sentences. And there's a video of her in the sentencing where she's screaming that she was raped and that they're putting her to death and that that doesn't make any sense. And then she also said that she hoped the judge's wife and kids would be raped, like so that they would <sighs> understand her experience. But you could really like feel her anger in the yeah. room that she felt like it was really unfair. Like I guess a lot of people who are on death row say that they just want to die because waiting for it is like torture. And she had said that before her first trial, her legal advisement had taken it literally. It was more just that she wanted it to be over with, it seemed yeah. like. So in addition to her diagnoses that we mentioned previously, Eileen scored 32 out of 40 on the psychopathy is it psychopathy mm -hmm. on the psychopathy checklist with 30 being the cutoff for determining psychopathy and the people who have studied her have said that her severe childhood trauma and repetitive sexual abuse even into her adulthood where it's just repeating the same trauma that she had at a very young pivotal age mm -hmm. was really what caused her to develop bpd as a trauma response and all of her trauma and triggers were just repeatedly brought up over and over and over again because yeah. she chose to be a sex worker mm -hmm. and that the way those men treated her probably made things a lot worse for her later in life. Mm -hmm. The last piece of information that I thought was really interesting, which comes back to the way that she tried to commit suicide, was FBI profiler Robert Ressler, who I think was the guy who came up with like the serial killer term. Mm-hmm. He cited Eileen as the only female serial killer he knew of that killed in a sequential fashion where like female serial killers are already less common, but they almost always kill in sprees. Mm. And she's the only one that he knew of at the time who killed in a sequential fashion that much more aligned with male serial killers and like the way they profile them, mm. which was interesting. Yeah. So that's Eileen. And my first question for you Mm -hmm. was just about borderline. I just wanted your perspective on her diagnosis and some of her behavior, especially like in her 20s as a response to her yeah. trauma. Yeah. It's always, oh, it's so hard to hear these stories specifically, yeah. especially when there is that diagnosis attached. For listeners, if this is your first time listening, I have borderline personality disorder. I don't know if I was tested, if I would still meet requirements now, like you can go into remission technically. And I'd say I'm like probably there for the most part. I think some of the stuff that overlaps and looks similar is bipolar and CPTSD related, but it is like sexual childhood trauma is like one of the most common precursors to developing borderline personality disorder. And, and I know that my view is maybe colored for better or for worse because of my own experience, but borderline gets a really, really bad reputation because of cases like these. And like, I just feel the need to defend, not necessarily her specifically, like I, I would still be like, there's so much that led to her <laughs> making these decisions that she did and acting in this way. But like, I just, it always makes me want to just like shake my fist for people with borderline because yeah. like, I remember when I was diagnosed, I went to the bookstore 
I think I have a, I wrote a poem about this in a poetry class in grad school, but I went to a bookstore and I was like trying to find a book on borderline to get better. And everything was how to leave a partner with borderline, Mm -hmm. how to stop walking on eggshells, like all of these things that are talking about how to help people without borderline leave or separate from people with borderline. Yeah. And I feel like there's a huge system failure for this diagnosis in particular. One, because personality disorders are already, that is already a term that is, needs to go away. But because there's such a bad reputation, all of these resources are so focused on like the people dealing with the person with borderline. Yeah. And so the people like me, the people who are maybe earlier on in their diagnosis and like that hasn't snowballed as much, like who are seeking help and resources can't find any. Yeah. So these cases in particular make me really sad because it it does, I think add to the stigma around borderline, but I think people also really overlook borderline as a trauma response, which is what it is. And so people kind of like attribute it to just, you know, you're just manipulative or you're just crazy or you're just violent or you're just whatever. When all of those things are a result of trauma. And I think that's where the personality disorder Mm -hmm. title does such a disservice. Yeah is because that title alone makes people who don't know anything about the disorder, personality is something you're born with. And so they assume that this is something that like you just kind of have forever and you're always going to be this type of person when like with the right treatment, dialectic behavior therapy, like, and her trauma was so, so, so severe. Like at some point, Unless you had extreme intervention, which clearly she never got. I don't know how a human brain recovers from stuff like that. I guess what I'm trying to say is like borderline is a trauma response. It was harm was done to these people. Mm -hmm. And not that that ever excuses anybody for harming another person. Right. But I would love to see people talk about borderline with more empathy. Yeah. Even if you're in a situation and there's someone with borderline and they aren't seeking help and it's damaging you, so you do need to take steps to remove yourself from this situation. Understandable. But the language used about these people, I literally just saw the other day a girl on social post. She has borderline. She kind of talks about it on Instagram. And she was t- she recorded one of her meltdowns, which you've seen me have some of those. Yeah. Where it's you're frozen. You can't really do anything. It's, it is all-encompassing, overwhelming. And there was a sweet, sweet person in the comments who says, my girlfriend has borderline. Does anybody have any advice on, like, how to support her in these? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people who are giving great advice, you know? Like, it's like you you sit through it, you write it out, you know? Different advice for works for different people. But there were so many people responding with just the word run. Yeah. I feel like I can't even talk about her case without being like, there's so much to it that's like I feel like one way about this one way about this where Mm -hmm. I feel like with borderline is a really good example of like I think with early intervention Mm -hmm. or any kind of intervention right people with borderline can really like Mm -hmm. live yeah and there's normally yeah and I think that like you said, it's a trauma response. I don't think that's a reason to leave a partner. Mm-hmm. And then there are cases where it is a situation yeah. that you should leave. So it's like, I think that it's really hard for the general internet public to take situations like that and live in that. In some cases, space. it's it's like, 
have a little compassion for right. that person. Yeah. Humanize that. That's a human mm-hmm. being. There's a reason that they're having that response to something. Yeah. Like be kind to them. And yeah. then there's other situations where it's like, okay, maybe in a romantic situation that's unsafe for you and mm-hmm. you should leave them. Yeah. Or go no contact with them or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like creating space for individuals to navigate an individual situation. (laughs) Right. Not copy pasting. I think the danger is saying like all of these people are crazy serial killers. They're all dangerous. They're all necessarily this. When like that is not true. And the people that I know, including myself, that I've interacted through support groups, internet, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a big community. There was a big community on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter anymore. X, whatever. Like, I know some people personally with Borderline. This is where I might cry. I'm going to try not to. The people I've met and the person I know I am, I think we talked a couple episodes maybe now about, like, needing our, like our needs getting yeah. met. At some point, these people, including myself, didn't have our needs met. Yeah. And what I see in most of these people, outside of their trauma responses, which can be scary and dangerous to themselves, mostly, sometimes to other people, are people who want so badly to just be loved as much as they love other people. Yeah. And it hurts when that doesn't happen. And that's true for anybody. It hurts when you're not given as much love, but I think it's then like that times 10, like amplified because of the trauma responses. And so I see these people and I'm like, someone didn't love you well. Yeah. And someone harmed you. And no, that doesn't excuse like, behavior that is harmful to others. Right. Most of the people I see are hurting themselves more than others. Right. <laughs> Exhibit A. Yeah. And that that stereotype does stop people from getting proper diagnosis. I didn't get a diagnosis at first because my first counselor thought I wasn't violent enough. Yeah. Which is like, had like hit myself in the face with a hammer like two weeks before. Like <laughs> yeah. violent to who? Myself. Right. But yeah, I, I see these people who like really, really love hard. And struggle when they don't get that in return after what they've been through. And obviously their trauma does shit to the brain. Like, yeah. and that's that's what I think people miss with trauma responses in particular, is that you are on autopilot. Yeah. I don't remember who I was talking to about, like, I know what it feels like to want to not do something and to not be able to stop yourself. Yeah. And I think they were like, wow, I never really thought of that. Because if you haven't had that visceral, physically overwhelming type of trauma response. Your face gets hot. You go into autopilot. You dissociate. You Like all of these things. Like I, I can't describe that in yeah. a way that helps anybody who hasn't experienced that understand that if you're suffering around someone with borderline, imagine what they're dealing yeah. with. Because most of the people I've talked to know, even in the moment, know I want to stop what I'm doing. I want to stop freezing up at social situations. I want to not cry in public about something. I wanted in college to not read my housemate's text, Mm -hmm. but it is just so potent and so powerful. And that is neurobiological. I don't know all the science-y terms, but that is literally like the neuropathways in your brain have malfunctioned essentially due to treatment that you've received, especially if you were a child. Because my brain still knew goodness and love from my childhood, despite what I went through. There was a bit of a foundation there to cling to. But I don't want to say there's no coming back from something like that, but it is really, really, really hard to do so. 
Yeah, and what I read was saying that her age, specifically when the abuse started, Mm -hmm. dissociative personality disorder is also really common in like really early childhood. Mm -hmm. And it's because of like what's actually happening in your brain development at that age. Mm -hmm. And I think the age that she was four that was when her mom left her. I don't know if that's when her... It's like right on the precipice Sexual of stage abuse of started, but it's when your brain is forming its like self-identity, and yeah. that's why it detaches them. I can't remember exactly what all the words are for it, but it was like when you're at that age, your brain like comes together into mm-hmm. one self-identity. Yeah. And if you've experienced extreme trauma before that age... Mm-hmm it like doesn't come together normally. And that's where you get those separate identities. Mm -hmm. But it didn't say anything about that for her. I feel like for her, it was like twofold in that she was abused by a lot of men, but also none of the women in her life protected her. Yeah, none of them. I mean, you're supposed to be protected by both, Mm -hmm. but like it should be worst case that the women are there to step in and help you. Yeah, none of them did. No including like her biological mom, her adopted mom. Mm -hmm. And I think she had to have been getting in trouble in school for the stuff that she was doing. And like, Mm -hmm. I always think with these cases, it's like, how did nobody intervene Yeah, for this kid? Like you're homeless at 14 and you drop out of school and no one checks on you. You're Mm -hmm. pregnant at 14 and no one's like, what's going on in that house? You know, like it makes me so angry to think about like a young kid like that Mm -hmm. having no one. And it's just like, well, if you don't have parents who care for you and love you, then you're just shit out of luck. And Mm -hmm. there's all these systems in place that are meant to catch it and Mm -hmm. protect kids. And it failed her, obviously. And like... I think I don't want to get into the camp of like excusing what she did as a grown woman. Yeah. But I do think when you look at her like really young actions and her early criminal activity, it just mostly makes me really sad for her because mm-hmm. she was clearly so reckless and not wanting yeah. to be alive. Nobody is really in her corner. And I think mm-hmm. that was why the Tyria thing made me so sad because it's the yeah. first person that she really loves Mm -hmm. and the way she talked about her through the whole trial and afterwards was like that that was the love of her life and like the only person she truly loved and I think to be betrayed yeah by that the only person in your life that you had that connection with would Mm -hmm. just be devastating yeah so that's that's like if my family all like decided to abandon me it's like the uh, a foundational solid thing you know yeah and not that she wasn't right in Telling the truth, but I think the way that they went about the confession affected how her trial went, Mm -hmm. and it really didn't seem fair. Not that she shouldn't have been convicted for those murders, but that confession Mm -hmm. tape was used a lot in in that first trial, and she might have had a better chance had she not spoken without legal representation, or had better legal representation, Mm -hmm. or had anyone to just chime in and help her right, so right that part was kind of frustrating mm-hmm. for me to read about I do think this is an argument for again because like she did terrible things she murdered people yeah obviously bad but there is something to be said for the countries who are working towards rehabilitation mm-hmm. rather than incarceration I believe in <laughs> abolishing like the incarceration system. I don't know what that looks like in detail. That's not my area of expertise. I have friends who deal with that. A friend who wrote her dissertation on it. But 
there's something to be said for the way certain countries are going about turning their legal system into a reformative system Mm -hmm. where it becomes something where they are providing the people with the help and support that they need. And that's, I think, especially true in the states are like poorer and people of color communities who it's like, okay, why did they get into dealing drugs in the first place? Obviously, the system failed them. Yeah. But if we had had a system in place that would pick up people like that, maybe after they, maybe it's because they committed a crime and they got caught and we put them into a position where there is an opportunity for rehabilitation. There's an opportunity to access services that could have saved her from doing several unspeakable things. I was interested with how I felt reading about her and reading some of like her accounts of the cases and also listening to some of the Mm -hmm. victims' families talk. I was really interested with how I felt Mm -hmm. about her versus how I feel reading about like a Ted Bundy Mm -hmm. where like I feel like with a Ted Bundy, he's luring people. There was just something about like, okay, we'll give the devil's advocate the Mm -hmm. way a lot of people saw this was, okay, she's using sex work to lure these innocent men Mm -hmm. out into the middle of nowhere, kill them, and then steal all of their valuable possessions, which very much could have been the case. Like, yeah. We can't really prove without mm-hmm. a shadow of a doubt that that's right. not what happened. Yeah. Or she's doing sex work to make an income. Whether the men that she killed, whether all of them were like legitimately starting to attempt to yeah. assault her or not, there's something like a flat that triggers a, f- a fight response. Well, and I and think could lead to this. There's a very important piece here where sex work, there are no protections yes. for sex workers mm-hmm. in their day to day work or in the legal system. Yeah. And so she's claiming that these things happened and self defense and all of this stuff. But if you're looking at the situation she's having to put herself in to like make a livelihood, mm-hmm. is literally getting into a stranger's car. Mm hmm driving out into the middle of nowhere and then spending maybe a whole day with them often with drugs and alcohol involved. Mm -hmm. So it's like, that's not a safe situation. And she has a weapon to protect herself, Mm -hmm. which she should, in my opinion. If anything were to happen to her, there's no evidence. There's no process in place to protect her. There's no one there that can witness it or back up what she's saying Mm -hmm. and to be honest i think even if there were other sex workers there i don't think they would really be listened to based on how oh yeah lord knows if they being a witness yeah they go in trying to report something like after the fact they didn't they didn't physically defend themselves they go in to report it after like the right way to do something when you're assaulted whatever that means or and they're like well you're a sex worker so therefore like what do you mean? You can't get raped if you're a sex worker because that's yeah. your job. It's yeah. like, no, that's And that someone's saying, I don't have the money. Yeah. There are no protections in that job mm-hmm. unless they're independently set up by, yeah. you know, someone you're working for or something mm-hmm. like that. But for the most part, there's no protection there or after the fact. Mm-hmm. And that's why I thought it was so interesting that she brought charges against that bus driver for assaulting her the year before this. And I couldn't find a confirmation that he was not convicted, Mm -hmm. but it didn't sound like it went anywhere because the only witness was Tyria. And so, and she had a a history of criminal activity 
I thought that the timing of that was interesting mm -hmm. that like I could see the narrative in her head being formed. Of, I like, can't trust law enforcement either. No one is going to protect me. Mm -hmm. I just have to protect myself. The thing that's like very odd is that she had been doing sex work for so long at that point. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's just that there are murders that were never found out about. And that she was mm -hmm. always doing this, or if it was some kind of scheme, it's like impossible to know. Yeah, but well, and I it's did also think that, like uh, self-defense was a very important mm -hmm. piece. That of course they're not going to believe her. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely how our justice system is set up, and that's how because sex work is illegal, there is no protection in place mm -hmm. for those people. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's the body keeps the score that talks about how. When you're facing trauma, you move through fight, flight, freeze, fawn. Mm -hmm. There's also like the reverse of that. Maybe she was fawning when she was younger, trying to protect herself, keep herself safe. Maybe she tried to run, tried to get out of the situation. Then maybe a lot of it was freezing when she did experience probably assaults or at the very least inappropriate behavior yeah. cross boundaries in her the early lives of her sex work and then to fight. Yeah. Like, well, there's just the different had, trauma responses that you can, like, move through. She had been accused of assault many times yeah. in the past, often against men, sometimes against her clients. Mm -hmm. It isn't, like, all of a sudden. Yeah. You know, like, and she had been carrying a gun mm -hmm. with her the whole time yeah. she's doing sex work. And there was a man who said that she pulled a gun on him in his car when they were having sex because mm -hmm. he couldn't pay her. So it's like, this has clearly happened before. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what would have happened to get her to a point to murder seven people step. in yeah. one year. Or like, um, what if she had just been doing it all along and just got careless yeah. with the evidence? Mm -hmm. But it did seem like she had gotten to like a really unstable mental place. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I have a fun <laughs> segment. Thank God. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> Fuck, Mary kill. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Santa Claus, Mrs. Claus, Buddy the Elf. I'm going to kill Buddy the Elf. Okay. Sorry. I'm going to fuck Santa and marry Mrs. Claus. Uh, those are mine as well. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Fuck, Mary kill, turkey, mashed potato stuffing. Kill turkey. Sorry. Does anybody really like turkey all that much? I don't. I don't. And then I'm going to fuck stuffing and marry mashed potatoes. Same. <laughs> okay, fuck, Mary kill, pumpkin pie, apple pie, pecan pie. Kill pecan pie. I know the neat one I need to kill first. I'm doing kill, Mary fuck. Yeah. Kill pecan pie. I don't like nuts in my dessert. And then I would kill pumpkin pie, marry apple pie. You did kill twice. Oh, kill pecan pie, fuck pumpkin pie, marry apple pie. But I would kill pecan pie. I've never had it, but I'm deathly allergic right, to pecan. Right, exactly. So I, I kill I'd kill pie. it for you. I think so this next one is close. the only one we're going to disagree on. Yeah. Fuck, Mary kill. Hot chocolate. Uh, did I say that wrong? Hot cocoa, apple cider, eggnog. Kill hot cocoa. I do, do love it, but so sorry. Fuck apple cider and marry eggnog, obviously. Yeah, I would kill eggnog, <laughs> fuck hot chocolate, marry apple cider. I think at least most of my family would also go more that route. Probably, because I think it's just me and my dad that like eggnog. <laughs> yeah, I can do without eggnog. Yeah. Okay, fuck, Mary kill, hinge, Tinder, Bumble. Kill Tinder, bad vibes. Yeah. Fuck Bumble. I just, I don't like having to send the first message. Yeah, Mary hinge. Yeah, Mary yeah, hinge. Yeah, same. If I had to. Wow, we're just 
Same Z's. Yeah. <laughs> okay, amazing. Did we get any new Patreon subscribers? We did not. Well, subscribe to our Patreon. <laughs> Guys, what are you doing? <laughs> get it together. My mom does watch the video every week instead Good. of listening to the audio and she loves it. Yeah. The videos are fun. So if you want to be like my mom, yeah, watch the video yes. on Patreon. I feel like we have some special somethings coming down mm-hmm. down the pipe. Pike? Mm-hmm. Pipe? Something. Um, on Patreon. Do we? Yeah, Maggie. <laughs> We're going to come up with it after this <laughs> because I said it. Like uh, early announcements for potentially merch drops. We'll um, have exclusive merch on Patreon. Yeah, pre-orders. For sure. We have some big dreams. Right. That I feel like now that I don't have a job, <laughs> uh, we're going to make a reality. Yeah. But a big dream for Patreon subscribers is to do lives. Yes. That would be so fun. And, and we'll publish the recording for mm-hmm. everyone, but we would have like opportunities for live Q&As and yeah. like everyone to be in the room together and we can mm-hmm. all have apple cider and, and, yeah. and you know, cozy woes girls. Even if you're boys, we're all going to be girls. Yeah. Yeah. For that moment. Yeah. So... Yeah. Patreon is a very fun place to be, but uh-huh. otherwise you can find us on Instagram. Yes. Find us on TikTok. Yes. Which blew up a little bit last night. Nice. Uh, maybe not like by any real standard, but for us, but I was our like, standards. oh my. Yeah. So find us on Instagram. Find us on TikTok at madwomaninthattic.pod. You can find us online at madwomaninthattic.com. Mm-hmm. Which there is a form at the bottom. I I really want to tell like more listener stories. Yes. So email us. Yeah. With and your also if you have suggestions for people to do, I've been getting a lot of people yes, suggestions. texting me suggestions. If you don't have my number, <laughs> uh, feel free to email them. Um, we'll give you a shout out when we do that episode, like I did for my mom. <laughs> yeah. So you can email us with ideas for people, women to cover. Mm-hmm. You can email us with any stories related to the episode. So, so far we've asked for cult stories, ghost stories. Yeah. I feel like I don't, I don't know if we want to hear your serial killer stories, but I guess. Unless you you have like, unless you had like a close contact, like a brush with a serial killer Yeah, a brush with a serial killer question mark. It's all over the table, the stories we're going to be telling. So if you're like, this feels like something that would eventually be read, we'll probably have an episode where that's relevant and it may be a few weeks from now, but we'll tell the story yeah. at the beginning when it fits. Yeah, we love it. Someone asked me on my Instagram Q&A the other day what my favorite part about the podcast is, and it really is talking to people who have listened to that. Ep- yes. like, like, we like to talk to each other, uh-huh. obviously, while we're recording it, but it's so fun when people are like, oh my god, yeah. I listened to this, and I had to just do that. Mm-hmm. It, it just makes me so warm and fuzzy. Yes. <laughs> it truly does. Yeah. That's it. That's it. That's all, folks. That's a wrap. That's all, folks. We did a great job on time. Yeah. We're really trying to rein it in. Yeah. So that every episode is not two and a half hours. Right. And we did a really good job. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Ho, 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 ho. Bye. Bye. Love ya. Love ya. Wow. Wow. What a time. Eat your cracker. Time for a cracker. (laughs) Please tell me you're still recording. (laughs) The crumbs falling down your face. They're everywhere. I'll clean it up. Don't worry. Okay. What? Say it to my face. Say it to my face. You limp noodle. Bitch. Say it to my face. You won't.
I'm going to fucking skin you alive. <laughs> I love that that's on <laughs> record. Um. <laughs> oh, we fucked it up. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, ready? 